Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. The word of the Lord comes to us tonight from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Now, this passage is primarily about God's message of judgment on Judah's last four kings. King Shalom, King Jehoiakim, King Jeconiah, and King Zedekiah. These were all descendants of King David who ruled one after the other during the time when Judah was under Babylonian control and just prior to Nebuchadnezzar destroying the city of Jerusalem and taking its inhabitants captives. Now, I realize that this is an Advent service and talking about old kings and uh, Old Testament Israelite exile doesn't sound very Christmassy. But trust me when I say that things get better because from this passage in Jeremiah, from this passage of judgment comes forth a glorious promise of a Savior to come. It begins in verses 1 through 2 with God's indictment on these four kings. Then at the very end of verse 2 through verse 4, God explains what he himself is going to do about wicked leaders. And then in verses 5 through 6, God tells us how things will ultimately turn out for his people. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. And let's hear the reading of God's holy word. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord, would you please speak to us from your word through the prophet Jeremiah. 23, verses 1 through 6. And let us hear your voice, Lord, 
And would your words sanctify us and give us a new appreciation for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever a passage begins with the word woe, you know that whatever comes next is not going to be good news. This is not, whoa, that's so amazing. This is, whoa, you're in serious trouble, right? Because the word woe is typically an indication that a message of judgment is about to come. And in our passage, God is judging Judah's kings, specifically its last four kings. But in verse 1, he refers to Judah's kings as shepherds. And that's because Israel's kings were supposed to act like shepherds over God's people, which means that they were supposed to guide, they were supposed to protect, and they were supposed to care for the people just as a shepherd would care and protect and guide his sheep. But how exactly were these posts, how exactly were these kings supposed to shepherd the people of Israel? Well, first and foremost, they were to keep God's covenant by obeying his commandments. This is why Moses instructed the people of Israel way back in, the Deut- in Deuteronomy, say, uh, telling the people to make sure that their future kings each write a copy of the book of the law and read in it all the days of their life so that they would not fall into sin and lead the people astray. In other words, any time Israel received a new king, that king was supposed to write an entire copy of God's law and dedicate his life to studying it so that he would know the will of the Lord and how to care for his people. And by caring for his people according to God's will, he would lead them in paths of justice and righteousness and thereby assure them that they were not going to go astray from the Lord and fall into sin. So that's the first way that Israel's kings were supposed to shepherd God's people. They were to be a student of God's word. Second, Israel's kings were supposed to protect and to defend its people from enemies who would either try to conquer them in battle or to morally corrupt them by causing them to go astray from the law of God. And lastly, Israel's kings were supposed to shepherd the people of Israel in justice and righteousness, which involved defending the innocent, caring and providing for the weak and the vulnerable, and doing no wrong to resident aliens who lived among them. These were just some of the key ways that Judas kings were were supposed to shepherd the people. But these four kings that God addresses in our passage did none of them. In fact, they did the opposite. For example, in chapter 22, right before our passage, we're told that these kings built houses for themselves in unrighteousness and made their neighbors serve them for nothing. 
Furthermore, we're told that they had eyes and hearts only for dishonest gain and for the shedding of innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. But perhaps what makes these four kings especially evil and wicked is that they were misrepresenting God himself, who is the chief shepherd of his people. This is why in Psalm 80, Asaph describes the Lord as the shepherd of Israel, who he says led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron when they came out of Egypt. And let's not forget those beautiful words that David penned in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Passages like these make it clear that the reason the kings of Israel are often referred to as shepherds is because they were supposed to reflect something of God's tender and loving and righteous character to the people that they were in charge of. And yet these kings did no such thing. And instead they took advantage of their power and abused the very people that they had been entrusted to love and to care for. As a result, in verse 1 of our passage, God indicts these four kings for destroying and scattering his people. And again, in verse 2, God accuses them of driving his people away and not attending to their needs. The sad thing, however, is that these four kings don't sound that much different from so many leaders that we unfortunately hear about today, do they? This includes leaders and pastors and husbands and fathers within the church, even within our own denomination, who take advantage of their power and positions of trust to abuse God's people in horrible ways. As a result, they send the people of God running from the church, causing them to forsake the God who loves them, who made them, and wants to care for them. And in doing so, these unrighteous shepherds of the sheep bring shame and dishonor on him they claim to serve. That's God's indictment of these four kings and all righteous or unrighteous leaders who would claim to represent God. But here's the good news of our passage. The good news is this. Our God is fully aware of all the sins and evil committed by unjust and unrighteous leaders. He never turns a blind eye to the shepherds of his sheep, nor is he indifferent or callous to the evil that is perpetrated by those who claim to serve him. In fact, Scripture tells us that 
No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And at the very end of verse 2 in our passage, we're told that not only does God know about these wicked rulers, but that he actually uh, will attend to them for their evil deeds. He says, behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. Meaning that he will repay each one of these wicked rulers according to their works of evil. And if you don't believe God's word when he says that he will punish the wicked, let's just consider what happened to each of these last four kings of Judah. King Shalom was taken captive in Egypt where he died a prisoner. King Jehoiakim, his corpse was thrown like the carcass of a donkey outside the walls of Jerusalem. Jeconiah was taken captive to Babylon and thrown into prison. And Zedekiah witnessed his sons being murdered by the Babylonians right before they gouged out his eyes and took him prisoner. And so I think it's fair to say that their evil did not go unpunished by the Lord. But punishing these wicked and unjust rulers is not all that God promises to do. He also promises to save his people and to deliver them to a place of safety. In verse 3, he says that he will gather the remnant of his flock out of all the countries where he has driven them and will bring them back to their fold. In other words, God himself will be that good shepherd of the sheep. He will be that righteous and just shepherd that men have failed to be. And he will bring them back to their land. Now one thing that I want to point out to you is this word remnant. This word remnant is important because it, sh- it assures us that there will in fact be a people of God. There will always be a people of God. In other words, God assures us that not all of his people will succumb to the forces of evil in this world. There will be some that he preserves who will stay faithful under the adversity and affliction of this present life. And not only will he preserve that remnant, but he will restore their fortunes by bringing them back to their land just as a shepherd brings back his sheep into the fold after they've gone astray. But this promise is about more than simply bringing the people of Judah back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was only special because it was a place where the temple was located, which is the place where God was thought to dwell with his people. And so when the Lord promises to bring his people back to Jerusalem, what he's really promising them is that he's promising to bring them back to himself where they will live in his presence forever. And it's there in his presence where God will cause his people to be fruitful and to multiply. 
Now, this language of fruitful and multiply is significant because it harkens back to the creation. When God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so what we are reading in our passage is that God is actually promising to restore his chosen people back to their original calling. In other words, this remnant that's going to return to the land is not going to backslide. They're not going to fall back into their former sinful ways. Instead, they are going to live how God has always intended humanity to live. And they will do that because, according to verse 4, God is going to set shepherds over them who will actually care for them. As a result, none of God's people, we're told, will go missing. Neither shall they have any reason to fear or be dismayed. But who exactly is this promise about? Who are these shepherds that will watch over and care for God's people? Well, in some sense, this promise was partially fulfilled by people like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. These were great leaders who helped the people of Judah resettle in the promised land after their exile in Babylon, and they helped them to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city walls. But the reason I say that these men partially fulfilled this promise is because God never returned to the temple in their days. And God's people never dwelled in safety without fear in their days. In fact, God's people continued to be harassed by other nations and were eventually ruled by the Roman Empire. So who then is this prophecy about? Well, the answer is found in verse 5, where the Lord promises his people, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so we see that, yes, this promise of faithful shepherds is partially fulfilled by men like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, but it is most fully realized in this righteous branch of David, which is another way of referring to a descendant of King David. But this is not just any random descendant of King David that God is talking about here. Rather, this righteous branch is the descendant that God himself promised to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, he's, where he told David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In other words, 
This promise that God made to David is a promise that one day that there will be a righteous king on the throne of Jerusalem. And this righteous king will rule God's people according to God's word perfectly. And he will lead them in paths of righteousness, like the psalmist says. And so we see here in our passage that even though Jerusalem is now destroyed and the last of her kings are gone, God is still going to keep his promise that he made to David those many years ago. That's why it's being reiterated here in Jeremiah chapter 23. He's letting the people know that I have not given up on my promise. My promise to David remains true even though all around you looks bleak and hopeless. From the ashes of Jerusalem, from the stump of David's kingdom, God will unexpectedly bring about a righteous descendant of David who will be that perfect shepherd of God's people. He will deal wisely with his people and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, no one will have cause to fear or be dismayed because in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. But the most astonishing thing about this prophecy that we read about in Jeremiah 23 is the name of this king. This king's name will be the Lord is our righteousness. Now let's think about the significance of this name. Elsewhere in scripture, we are told that no one is righteous, that all have sinned, that no one seeks after God, that no one does good. That is the state of mankind. Ever since the fall of man, ever since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, men and women have been born in sin. And we have suffered the consequences for our sin. We have suffered it in our sickness. We have suffered it in our broken relationships. We have suffered it under unjust rulers and kings. We have suffered under persecution. Those are the consequences for our sin that we have lived under all of our days. And so now God is saying, I am going to establish a king who is righteousness. And not only will he be righteous, but his righteousness will be your righteousness. In other words, God is promising that there will be a day in which mankind is no more considered sinful. That mankind is restored to a right relationship with God. And because we are now restored to a right relationship with God, we can live in the presence of God. And because we live in the presence of God, we no longer have to be threatened by the things that plague us right now. We no longer have to be threatened by our sin. We no have to longer be threatened by suffering because we live in God's presence. That's what's being offered to us here in the gospel in Jeremiah chapter 23. And so how 
does this passage get fulfilled? Where do we see this come true? Well, it comes true in Jesus Christ, who the gospel writers make clear are, is a descendant from David, both from, both from his mother's side and from his father's side. And no one expected him. He was a carpenter's son. And yet the angel Gabriel promised his mother, saying that he will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, how did this Jesus save his people from their sins? Well, he saved his people from his sins by doing what we could not. By living a perfect life of obedience unto God. He knew God's word and God's will better than anyone. And fulfilling that word and that will was his greatest desire. His life's calling. And he fulfilled it perfectly every day of his life. In the face of sin, suffering, and temptation, he fulfilled God, obedience to God's law. And what was his reward when he did that? What did he get for his perfect obedience? He got a crown of thorns. He was crucified on the cross. Why was he crucified on the cross? Because he had to pay the penalty for our sins. Our God is a just God. The God who made you and made me is a God of justice, and he demands righteousness. He demands that sin be accounted for. It's part of who he is. It's his holy nature. And so sin had to be paid for. And since we couldn't do it, Jesus stepped in and did it in our place. He took the sins of all those who would believe in him, and he paid them eternally, infinitely, wiped them out. And then he gave us his righteousness. He covered us, clothed us in his righteousness. I like the way the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, fathers, mothers in the faith, this is the gift of Christmas. This is why we gather and celebrate this holiday. This is why playing beautiful music and singing hymns is a worthy celebration. Because we have been given the gift of eternal life. We have been given that gift that we don't deserve. We who were sinners and knew no righteousness have been made perfect and righteousness in the, son of, in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He is our King. He is our Lord. And furthermore, He is sitting on His throne in heaven right now where He rules and controls all things according to God's will. 
And in according to God's will, he is shepherding his people. He continues to lead us and guide us in righteousness according to his word under the faithful watch of shepherds, men who are pastors. He himself describes him. He describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. But no one and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. You see, Jesus is that great shepherd king of God's people. And he is gathering, he's in the middle of gathering his flock to himself. When he came to earth as an infant the first time, it was to pay for the sins, our sins on the cross. And now as he sits enthroned in heaven, he is at work gathering his flock to himself, calling them out of all the countries and all the nations where he has driven his people and bringing them into his presence. That is the joy of Christmas. And all you have to do to receive it is to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as your good shepherd. He is calling you. He is calling out to you. Do you hear his voice? His sheep hear his voice and respond to it. And once you are his, once you believe and trust in him, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. This is why he tells us that we will have safety and security in his days. Because once Christ saves you through faith, no amount of sin, no amount of works of the devil no matter how hard he tries, can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. You are eternally and everlastingly his. He loves you. He cares for you. He guides you. He protects you. This is your king. This is your shepherd. This is your gift of Christmas. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of our Savior. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, we did not deserve him, and yet you gave him to us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we may dwell securely in your presence all the days of our life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never take for granted or to ever forget what this Christmas season is all about. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear and to respond to the voice of our shepherd. Would you draw us close to Jesus? Would you keep us secure in him, that we may delight in him and glorify him all the days of our lives? We ask these things in his name. 
Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.